Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert, I've got a question for you. Okay, shoot. I know you've heard the old, would you rather be able to fly or be able to turn invisible question. What's your answer to that, by the oh, way? Oh, it's always been invisible. Yeah. Yeah. That's the creep's answer. Well, it's the creepy. It's the you know, it's the observer's answer. It's the it's the student of human behavior's answer. Because if I'm flying around looking at stuff, I'm going to be scaring wildlife. You know, people are going to be staring up at me, and trip traffic accidents are going to occur. But if I'm invisible, and if I'm invisible and I play it uh, safe, and I you know, and ethically, mm-hmm. then uh, you know, I get to observe uh, the world as it uh, goes about its business. You know, another advantage there is that flight can easily be achieved with technology, but there's no way to become invisible technologically. So that's that's the truly more magical power. But (laughs) what I was going to ask you is, would you rather have wings or a prehensile tail? This is interesting because I was was actually blogging about this a little bit yesterday. I was looking into, because there's a particular uh, plastic surgeon, uh, Joseph Rosen, uh, who's a real, real trendsetter, real Real, just amazing intellect in the world of plastic surgery. He does a lot of actual, real-life work with uh, facial reconstruction and wounded warriors, but he's also a transhumanist. So he's he's written a lot about the not only can we do all these things, we should do them. We will get to the point where we add tails and wings. Uh, well, I was coming at this from a somewhat magical perspective because I I don't think humans would necessarily be able to fly even if they had wings because we're just too dense, right? You would. There, like, there are like our bones are much more dense than birds. Yes. Now there, there are theoretical ways to transform the human arm into a bird's wing, and, and it would be a lengthy surgical process. And then they still wouldn't be able to support you in flight. You would have to have additional uh, tissue, perhaps clone tissue or vat-grown tissue, that would be used to uh, to graft on and create the size of wings necessary to fly. And then, of course, you still wouldn't have any arms. <laughs> You would just have, like, large bat wings. So, I mean, along those lines, I would probably go with the tail because it would it would change my life less dramatically. Now, would it be more horrifying to not have hands at all and just have wings like a bird or to be like a bat and, and basically have gigantic hands that you can't really use as hands? But you, you can still see some finger bones in there. Um, well, they're, they're both... They're both fine choices. <laughs> but wait a minute. This episode isn't about wings. It's about tails. That's right. We're talking about tails, uh, specifically in this episode, about animal tails. And then there's going to be a second episode where we talk about the absence of tails, for the most part, in human beings. Okay. So wait. Did you come down one way or another, wings or tails? Definitely tails. Oh, you'd, you'd rather have a prehensile tail than wings? Yes. I mean, especially if it was a nice functional tail, that yeah. you know, the prehensile tail that I could utilize in my daily environment. It wouldn't just be about... Out, you know, keeping flies away from me. I've always thought a prehensile tail would be most useful to a musician. Yeah. You know, playing a musical instrument, that's when you really wish you had more hands. Yeah, if you're a one-man band, you could you could really use that extra appendage. Right. Yeah. Th- that's for your double bass drum pedal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, before we get... A in- one-man death metal band. <laughs> Not but ba- uh, What would it be? Speed metal? Thrash metal? Yeah. Who yeah, uses the double bass pedal? Mm-hmm. It's too technical a question for me, <laughs> but uh, you know when, when it comes to tales, uh, and, you know we're, we're already talking about uh, semi-fictional accounts. But um, but I say a, a few examples that come to my mind that make me also want to want to go in the prehensile tail direction versus the wing direction. Um, I think of uh, Minos 
from Dante's Inferno. Okay. Um, who has this enormous serpentine tail, and uh, when you are a new arrival in hell, uh, he wraps this tail around you, and uh, and it, he's able to determine which level of the Inferno you're bound for based on how many coils wrap around your body. Now, I can't remember, does this also go into sorting the virtuous pagans, or is this only once you're definitely in the hell? Part I, I think this is more about like definite hell as okay. opposed to the the uh, yeah the, limbo, the noble pa- pagans in limbo on the outside. Yeah, this is your inhale hell. Now we need to get you where you go, and uh, Minos is in charge of sorting you. Well, that's a smart tale. Yeah. <laughs> Another one that comes to mind is um, uh, Calibos uh, from Clash of the Titans, the old Clash of the Titans, the 1981 Harry Hamlin uh, duking it out. Uh, version. I assume you've seen this uh, classic film. You know, I have to admit, I actually have not. What? This, this is this is some Ray Harryhausen claymation. Oh yeah, right? fabulous, I, fabulous claymation. I love that stuff, and I've never seen this movie. I think I've seen the scene where the where the Titan comes to life. Mm-hmm. This is a huge statue. Oh, is that from Clash of the Titans? Well, there's the Kraken. This one has. The Kraken, it has Medusa, Pegasus, that little mechanical owl, okay. and of course, uh, Calibus, who's this, um, this character who's twisted by the gods into this, uh, sort of Caliban-esque creature with horns and a d- demonic face and then a long swinging tail. That's great. We'll have to watch it. I love the, uh, Harryhausen Sinbad movies. Those oh, are yeah. great creatures. Those are, those are wonderful. Yeah, there's one that has, um, oh, what's his name that went on to be Doctor Who, or the, the Doctor in Doctor Who, rather. Um, the classic. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Tom Baker? Tom Baker, yeah. Which one is it? I don't know. I saw it at a, like a drive-in event once, and it was, <laughs> it was fabulous, because you get to see him as a dark sorcerer. Oh, that's great. Um, one other fictional tale creature that I want to mention, because it's 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 played a role in my life a lot recently, is the Chippendale Mupp from uh, Dr. Seuss's Sleep Book. I don't know what you're talking about. Ah, oh, wow. This is, this is a fabulous Dr. Seuss book, uh, in that it just takes the soon, hopefully, to be a sleep child through this dreamland. Um, or it's, I guess it's a waking dreamland, and uh, all these creatures are going to sleep. And the, the overall argument is, hey, look at all these things that are going to sleep. You should join this crew. In slumber. And uh, the Chippendale <laughs> Mupp is this character who, quote, his tail is so long he won't feel any pain till the nip makes the trip and gets round to his brain. So what happens is this um, this creature bites its exceedingly long tail right before it goes to sleep so that the pain will travel all the way through the tail and travel eight hours all the way around and back up the spinal column, hit his brain, and then he'll feel the pain and wake up. And I recently crunched the numbers on this. And if, if I'm correct, for this to work, based on the, the speed at which pain travels uh, through a nervous system, uh, the tail would need to be uh, about 1,008 kilometers or 626 miles long. So <laughs> that's enough. That So if the thing were laying out straight in the western United States, it could lay with its nose in Seattle, Washington, and its tail in Sacramento, California. Wow. Yeah. I have absolutely nothing to add to that horrifying children's story. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I mean, the only other fictional tale that uh, that instantly comes to mind is, of course, the xenomorph tale uh, from uh, Alien and Aliens, creature that every every part of the the creature is a is a weapon, and of course, its tail is a rather cinematic weapon as well. Yeah, it's a it's a barbed spear. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, it looks like it was designed to get stuck in you. And one thing I have to notice about that tail, it never seems like you see the tail coming. It's always suddenly poking out of your torso, and you're <laughs> looking down at it, and why did this happen? Yeah, it, yeah, it whips it around and then right through you. 
But those are fictional tales. We should uh, we, we should start by just talking about the very basics here. Yeah, the very well, basics of tales. Yeah. For example, what is a tale? What is the essence of a tale? It's uh, you know, it's a harder question than, than you <laughs> yeah. than you uh, you know because when you first think of it, especially from a vertebrate standpoint, you think, well, that's just the other end of uh, of the vertebrae, right? Mm-hmm. That's the 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 tail end of the vertebrae. It's almost difficult to think about tails outside of our language of tails. Yeah, and an interesting fact is that even animals that don't have tails as an adult often show a tail at some stage of their development. So a frog might not have a tail, but the tadpole that became that frog had a tail. You might not have a tail, but when you were in the womb as an embryo, you had a tail. That's right. And then it uh, it simply goes away, usually, before we're born. Yeah, usually. Um, we'll get to that, <laughs> I guess, in the next episode. Uh, yeah, it gets reabsorbed by the body, right? Yeah, so... Tails are a huge deal with vertebrates. We just happen to uh, uh, belong to a, a rather exclusive club of creatures that do not have tails. Uh, and likewise, you look at the invertebrate world and tons of fascinating tails there as well that exist without the uh, uh, necessity of underlying vertebrate. Now, if you're an invertebrate and you have whatever we would call a tail, is that technically a tail or not? <laughs> yeah, it's a it, it's a more difficult question than 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 you think. You know, when you start. Especially when you look at some of the specific examples uh, that we're going to roll through, um, uh, you know, particularly the scorpion, like trying to figure out where this tail came from and how it, uh, it eventually evolved into this rather curious form. Now, when in uh, discussing tails, you basically have two types. There's kind of, and you can sort of think of this as non-functional or barely functional tails versus functional and highly functional tails. So the first thing I've got to ask about before we get into these vertebrate tales is what is going on with the scorpion? Because I love I love arachnids and I love scorpions. When I was a little kid, my dad one time took a trip to Arizona, and when he came back, he had one of those uh, one of those tourist you know gifts that that is a scorpion inside a piece of glass. Oh yeah, and he he gave this to me, and I used to just stare at it, thinking like this is the coolest thing on planet Earth. Where where does this tail come from? <laughs> Why is it so cool? Well, it's uh, it's interesting because of course what you what you have here when you're looking at a scorpion, you have a, a segmented curved tail that's tipped in a venomous stinger, uh, which it uses for self defense, but uh, also against prey that's large or feisty. Like if they're if they're coming up against something small, they'll often just use their claws and not even employ the stinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, about 25 different species of scorpion uh, possess uh, venoms capable of killing a human. Uh, and the rest have venoms that are not that potent, but, uh, of course, you know, allergies and uh, whatnot can play into reactions. Uh, now, the interesting thing about scorpions is that their body is a very old design. Uh, it's changed a little over the past 400 million years, and they probably evolved from the long-extinct sea scorpions. Oh, the Eurypterids. Yeah, the Eurypterids. Those are the huge ones, right? Like, you see the fossils of those, and it's just astounding. Yeah, biggest people. And uh, the, the sea scorpions, uh, they also f- uh, featured a segmented tail that ended in at least a spike. Now, it's difficult, perhaps even impossible, to know if these were venomous or non-venomous. Uh, it's likely that they used to use them for propulsion or balance during swimming, and that it just eventually evolved into a venomous weapon over time. This is one of the interesting stories about evolution, because you see this primeval tail mm-hmm. 
emerging in many older forms of life where they've got some kind of appendage coming out the back of their body. But there are so many different evolutionary routes this tail could go down in, in later development. Uh, and I guess that's what we're going to be exploring in, in this episode of the podcast today is like 18 roads diverged in a yellow wood. Mm-hmm. And depending on which one you picked, you might have a tail that communicates your emotions or a tail that stabs your prey and injects venom or a tail that helps you climb trees or who knows what. A, I mean, there are tons of things you can do with a part of your body that you don't necessarily have to use for walking or, or propulsion, though some animals do continue to use it for that. Yeah, so I definitely uh, challenge everyone to, to keep our... Um our transhuman question in mind as we move forward. If you were to uh, to have the chance to gain a tail, uh, might some of these examples sweeten the deal for you? I think everybody's just going to go with the xenomorph tail in the end. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I don't see the xenomorph uh, doing a lot of practical things outside of murder with that tail. Right. Yeah. It must not be that fulfilling to be a xenomorph. Well, you know, you know fulfillment is a very human. Uh, uh, classification, I guess. Right, I'm just projecting, I guess. Yeah, they live to serve. Well, I think we should first talk about prehensile tails in the animal kingdom. If you're not familiar with what they are, I guess you might have been a little bit lost so far, but a prehensile tail is a tail that to some degree can be used for manipulation and grasping. They're usually divided into fully prehensile or semi-prehensile tails, depending on what the animal can do with Ah, uh, Yes. And you you might think it would be really great to have a prehensile tail as a human because it'd be like having another hand. You know, you could just do whatever. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. You could play m- more musical instruments or something like that. But I also want to ask the question of, do you really need one? Because when you look at all the animals that have prehensile or semi-prehensile tails, I see a common feature, and this might not be the case, but at least in my observation, they all tend to live in environments that are kind of like a jungle gym mm-hmm. where there are branches or seagrass or coral reefs. And if you look at pictures of animals using their prehensile tails, sometimes they're used for free object manipulation, you know, scooping up a bunch of something. But the majority of what I see is animals using the prehensile tail as an aid in climbing or an anchor against some force, such as hanging from a tree limb, so anchoring against gravity, or uh, how a seahorse uses its tail as a grasping organ to latch onto things like coral and anchor itself against the tide so it can just sit there and wait and and do its thing with its head. I guess the seahorse doesn't really have hands to work with. Yeah, the discussion of a jungle gym-like environment, it reminds me of uh, uh, Dan Simon's Hyperion Cantos, uh, his uh, sci-fi series. There's a, a kind of a, a subspecies uh, of humans or a, a branch of humanity known as the Ousters, and they live in... Uh, in, in, in low gravity or zero gravity environments. And so their, their soldiers particularly will often be seen, uh, uh, with, uh, robotic tails, uh, added to their suits to, uh, to aid in this very kind of environment. Cause you're in a weightless, like, you know, ship hole environment. You are essentially living in this kind of jungle gym. So it, it would be advantageous in that environment to have a tail, uh, even if it's just a robotic one. A robotic tail. You know, I think I've seen people have already created robotic tails. Have you read about these? No, I, I, I was look. I've looked at a few different studies that have uh, 
involved the biomimicry of, say, the uh, seahorse tail. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but uh, I haven't, uh, I didn't notice any studies where anyone's actually fixing this thing under the their posterior. Oh, not so much studies. There's something I know we've talked about in forward thinking that was, it, it wasn't so much functional as it was decorative, but it was a tail that would respond to your emotions. Oh, okay. All right. So the tail is a communication you could, Yeah, you could wag your tail like a dog, which we will get to in a bit. But, of course, I I said at the beginning what you can do with the tail if you don't have to use your tail for movement. Of course, plenty of animals do still have to use their tails for movement. They're, they're a crucial part of their locomotion method. Like oh, indeed. Birds, for example. Yeah, I mean, snakes, fish. Uh, birds, uh, in particular, you have a highly uh, specialized tail. The feathered tail of a flighted bird contributes to lift as well as stabilization, drag reduction. So it's um, a very fine-tuned part of their anatomy. Yeah, and of course there are fish. Animals that live in the water often use tails for propulsion, generating a, a paddling motion that mm-hmm. pushes against the water in a way that cancels out side-to-side motion but generates net thrust in the forward direction. In fact, if you've never seen it, you should look up simulations of of fish swimming motions in fluid in uh, fluid dynamic simulators. There, I found a couple of videos of this on YouTube, and it's really interesting seeing the uh, the the waves that are generated by the side to side motion of a fish's body and tail. As the the wave sort of starts at the head and then gets bigger and bigger as it goes back toward the tail, and it generates this upside down Y shape of of directional motion. Oh yeah, it's like a full body movement as opposed mm-hmm. to just the you know sort of mechanical fish with the tail that goes back and forth from the, your your bathtub. Right, that'd be more like a uh, I don't know a side to side propeller. That, I yeah. guess that's kind of like sculling in a in a boat, right? If you just wag the rudder back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> Another interesting fact, if you've never noticed, is that fish tend to sweep side to side in their swimming. And marine mammals like dolphins and whales sweep up and down. Hmm. Uh, there may be exceptions to this. I'm not aware of them if there are, but it's an interesting artifact of the divergent and then subsequently reconvergent evolutionary pathways of fish and marine mammals. Ah, so the, like the, the whale tail, the horizontal whale tail versus the vertical shark tail. Yeah. Or I guess the more apt uh, comparison would be dolphins and sharks, as that is the... The distinction one is often trying to make at the the beach or in the water. Yeah, I don't know why it took me so long in my life to notice this, but I, I just never noticed that difference until I think I was at an aquarium one time mm-hmm. and I was looking at the at uh, belugas that were swimming through the aquarium and I was like, what's wrong with that thing's tail? <laughs> oh, it's just not like fishtails. It goes the other way. Yeah. Now, of course, we already mentioned that uh, communication is a big deal with tails in a number of species. And, of course, what what manner of communication is more important than, uh, than that involved in courtship? Exactly right. And here we're going to get to one of the most interesting things I've come across in, in our research about tails, which is the courtship tail feathers of the peacock. Actually... Uh, another pop quiz. Do you know the generic non-gendered term for peacocks and peahens? No, I don't. It is peafowl. Peafowl. Okay, that's that's that seems rather neutral. Yeah. I just thought that was a great word. Peafowl. Yeah. Nobody ever says, "Let's go look at the peafowl," though. It's the peacocks. <laughs> it's true. Well, it it's an unfortunate fact that nobody cares about seeing the peahens because they do not have these gigantic, interesting tails. Uh, I'm sure peahens are wonderful. No, no offense to them, but th- they don't put on a display like this, and and that's what we're going to talk about here. Another interesting fact: 
Did you know that what we call the peacock's tail is usually not actually its tail? Oh, really? Yeah, most of the time, this thing you see when you think of a peacock, what we're talking about is its covert feathers, which are feathers that cover the tail feathers. It's also referred to as a peacock's train. And as you've surely seen before, when a when a peacock props up and spreads out its covert feathers, they form this gigantic, shimmering, iridescent display of plumage full of spots that look like eyes. And if you want to use a cool word, those eye spots are called ocelli. Oh. I had always read that the peacock's train was known to be used for mate selection purposes. Though in reading up on this for today's episode, I found out that there have been some really interesting questions and doubts recently thrown into the mix here. But this is a really interesting story about the complexities of evolutionary biology and, and questioning what we thought we knew. So there's this mate selection theory of the peacock's train. The right, idea this is that, the most pr- prominent one. This is the one you, we've all heard growing up. Yeah, and, and Charles Darwin thought about this. Mm-hmm. Charles Darwin, if you're Charles Darwin and you look at a peacock's train, this huge, shimmering, eye-spot-covered extravagance, you think, what on earth is this for? You're, you're coming up with this theory of natural selection where organisms that are the most adapted to survive and reproduce in their environment are the ones that survive. How do you encourage a trait that's so wasteful and pointless? I mean, it, it doesn't, it, it takes energy resources to develop a train like this. It doesn't seem to provide any sort of mechanical survival advantage, so it doesn't help the peacock fly higher or, you know, kick with its spurs harder or something. In fact, it would actually seem that feathers like this make the peacocks more vulnerable to predators. So what's the deal? Why would you have something like this in an animal? So I've actually read several hypotheses over the years to explain the the extravagance of the, the peacock's train display and the... I guess we should start with the sexual selection effect. This is what's sometimes called runaway sexual selection. And the point is that at some point, way, way back in the peafowl's ancestral lineage, the peahens, the, the female peafowl, preferred slightly longer, more elaborate trains for some reason related to fitness. Maybe it made the males stronger, more powerful in flight. And this choosiness kept being magnified more and more over the generations until the peacocks were no longer displaying fitness, but they were just being bred by the females to have longer and more elaborate trains in the same way we would breed a dog to encourage a certain trait to to intensify over generations. We just end up with a ridiculous breed of dog that has no clear function anymore other than to look Funny. Yeah, and that's what the peahens are doing to the peacocks over <laughs> the generations. They develop a preference for a certain type of trait in males, and the males that have that trait get more mating opportunities, and this gets magnified over the generations. And if there's not enough of a selection pressure to counteract the sexual selection, like if there's not a strong enough force saying, okay, uh, males with these big train displays really are going to get killed all the time, then they'll just keep getting bigger and bigger. Another evolutionary explanation that I've read about is that the large extravagant displays function as a sort of calculated conspicuous handicap to show off the fitness of the male. And it's kind of like in human terms, a guy 
showing off how much money he has to waste by wearing lots of pointless, expensive jewelry mm-hmm. or like a swordsman demonstrating his superiority by dueling with one hand tied behind his ah. back. The point is like, I am so fit. I am such a good mate that I can have this enormous handicap, this pointless waste of resources and still be the best. Okay. That make that, that that makes sense. It's like I have the time and energy to put into this ridiculous, uh, cumbersome uh, um, addition to my body. Mm-hmm. Another uh, hypothesis that's been developed over the years is that the ability to produce large elaborate trains is an advertisement that the peacock is relatively free of parasites, which would impair his ability to produce and maintain a large, beautiful train like this. Hmm. But I want to talk about some specific studies because, like I said, the research now seems to have gone back and forth about the role that the peacock's tail plays in the mating rituals. So in the early 1990s, the behavioral ecologist Marion Petrie of Newcastle University carried out some really often cited research. And this is one of the, the big studies in this field. Uh, one paper in Animal Behavior in 1991 was called Peahens Prefer Peacocks with Elaborate Trains. So what do, what do peacocks do when they want to mate? Well, they aggregate into something called a lek. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. It's L-E-K. And that, so the males gather together, and in this case, uh, Petri and her, her team observed one lek that was c- consisting of ten males and they found that there was a big difference in how much the different males in the lek got opportunities for mating. So the top male, according to them, copulated 12 times, while the least successful males in the lek got no sex whatsoever. And uh, Petrie's team concluded that, quote, over 50% of the variance in mating success could be attributed to train morphology. Uh, there was a significant positive correlation between the number of eye spots a male had in his train and the number of females he mated with. Hmm. So, so th- they found that the females didn't mate with the first male they met, but they would visit several different males. And in 10 out of 11 cases in their study, that ended with successful copulation in their terms, though I'm trying to imagine what unsuccessful copulation is. The male that the female chose was the one with the greatest number of eye spots. So this seems pretty straightforward. More eye spots on your train means you get more mating opportunities. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. It's kind of like more the more jewelry, the more uh, the fancier the clothes, the more uh, the more money that the uh, that uh, the individual has to spend on drinks and nights out. Uh, yeah, that translates to the the economics of uh, the development of these eye feathers. Yeah, yeah. So th- this seemed to be accepted for a while until now. That paper was called "Peahens Prefer Peacocks with Elaborate Trains." In two thousand eight, in the same journal, Animal Behavior, there was a paper called "Peahens Do Not Prefer Peacocks <laughs> with More Elaborate Trains." Uh, this was carried out by a team led by Mariko Takahashi, and they were trying to replicate the original results in a feral population of Indian peafowl in Japan over the course of seven years of observation. And Takahashi and uh, her co-authors claimed to have found no evidence at all that the peahens expressed any preference for peacocks with more elaborate trains. <laughs> That's what they said. This means the females did not show any noticeable preference for males with longer trains, more symmetrical trains, or more eye spots. And those are the three things that are often cited as, as being the, you know, the things you want your train to have. Huh. 
So what does that what does that mean? Where does that leave us? Well, according to them, they concluded that the peacock train display is it might be a necessary part of successful mating. So a male that can't show a, a train display is not going to get to mate. But they they came up with three concluding points. They said it, the train is not the universal target of female choice. Uh, the trains don't vary a whole lot across male populations. And then they also said, quote, based on current physiological knowledge, it does not appear to reliably reflect the male condition. So they don't think that the train is all that much of an indicator of fitness. Hmm. And what they ended up concluding is that it's just an obsolete signal huh. that it maybe it used to correlate to female preference, but it just doesn't anymore. It's it's tempting to take that and try to apply it to the human world and, and various mating practices and you know romance practices <laughs> that are really kind of becoming uh, pointless in our modern age. But it's it's part of tradition, so you kind of have to do it. I mean, you, you you don't really do it, but every you don't. I mean, you don't really have to do it, but everyone feels a little weird if you don't. Right? Yeah. How many common I don't know dating or courtship practices are still somehow based on the idea that in a relationship a man will be the person who's earning the money for the couple when mm-hmm. in you know many or most cases in the western world that's not the case anymore. Yeah. Or there's so many different little you know superstitions and traditions in the wedding ceremony itself. My my wife shoots a lot of weddings so I get to hear I always hear, you know, well, did they do a first look or did they do the whole, you know, the, the straight up deal where no, the bride and the groom do not see each other till the ceremony. And like, that's something that really has, has no bearing on anything whatsoever. But when it comes time to put the wedding together, there is often, you know, enough tradition, uh, you know, bouncing around in your head that you say, I oh, know we're going to, we're going to stick to the, the old, I don't see you and you don't see me until the moment of, uh, of our, of our, uh, our actual ceremony. Are weddings the human version of investing tons of resources in an elaborate train display? Yeah, I think there's a strong case for that. So that was what they concluded, but there's still more to the story, because yet another animal behavior study was published in 2011 that seemed to strike a note somewhere in between the two (laughs) that came before, and it said, peahens prefer peacocks displaying more eye spots, but rarely. I can see this study perhaps not getting as much play in the, in the media. Yeah, there. I, I did read a Good Nature News article about it. Okay, but good. the main takeaway was, and I want to read a quote here to get it exactly right. They said, Peafowl mate choice is clearly more complex than previously thought. Females may reject a few males with substantially reduced eye spot number while using some other cue to choose among males with typical trains. In other words, if you have way fewer eye spots than normal, if you were obviously eye spot deficient you will not get sex as a peacock but there's no real difference between an average number of eye spots and a much greater than average number of eye spots the main takeaway i got from this is that peafowl mate choice seems to be more complicated than we originally thought and actually the the main author of the original study from 1991 uh, marjorie petrie said as as quoted in a 2011 article in nature news quote at the end of the day, we will never know what peahens are looking at and how they select their mates. You can't ask them. Now, at this point in our discussion of peacocks and peahens, um, you know, I have to say, there's got to be a way to spice it up a little bit. I feel like some some listeners out there might be saying, "All right, I'm I'm, I'm ready to extract from the whole peacock uh, discussion, but wait." 
Right. What if we throw cyborgs in there? Right, because you can answer Marjorie Petrie's <laughs> question in a way you can ask them. I mean, you can't ask them, but you can take a look at what peahens are looking at by making a cyborg peahen with eye-tracking devices. In the Journal of Experimental Biology in April 2013, there was a paper called Through Their Eyes, Selective Attention in Peahens During Courtship. And the researchers behind the study wanted to see if they could find out exactly what peahens were looking at when they were presented with a male doing his courtship display. So they rigged up what looks like a cyborg peahen. She's got eye-tracking hardware on, and she looks like something out of those, you know those Terminator rip-off movies that started coming out in the late 80s oh, yes. <laughs> where everybody was a cyborg or had had some kind of like cyborg upgrades for a while though there were so many of them mm-hmm. they were all shot on the same pseudo industrial setting back lot where everybody just seemed to wander around factories and alleyways all the time anyway what did the peahen look at? Curiously, in the video I saw of this, she spent almost all her time looking across the bottom of the peacock's train display. And the scientist in the video suggests that that means she's evaluating the width and symmetry of the train. So, I don't know. We're kind of back to the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I I thought this was very interesting that something that we originally thought was a pretty settled matter of of, uh, evolutionary adaptation turns out is very complicated and we don't fully understand it. Uh, and just one more hypothesis I came across, I don't know where to fit this into everything else, but this was that the peacock's train display makes infrasound as it vibrates, and this infrasound wow. might play some sort of role in mating. Oh, wow. So it could be even more nuanced than originally suspected. Huh. Yeah. Now, um, I want to talk just briefly about the hippo tail. Um because this is a tale that is, is easy to miss, is easy to you know say, f- to forget to draw when you're drawing hippos for a child, as, as I often do. I'm picturing a hippo tail. Mm-hmm. It's not very big. No, nope. it doesn't make a courtship display. No, nope. it doesn't seem to communicate a whole lot. Maybe it communicates a little. So what's the point? It's just a little dangly, tiny thing. Yeah, like barely covers the uh, the hippo uh, anus, really. Um, well, here's the here's the thing. If you see a, if you see a hippo in the wild, if you see a hippo at the zoo, uh, the uh, what the tail does is that as the hippo releases its bowels, uh, the tail flips back and forth in order to fling poop like some sort of fecal sprinkler system, and uh, it's suspected that this is how male hippos woo mates in marked territory. So it could be a form of communication, a, a, a fecal communication system. Uh, though there's another theory out there, uh, and this theory is that it's a means of flinging parasites away from the hippo's body, huh. such as the Placebdelodios jaeger schiodeli leech, <laughs> a special leech that feeds exclusively on the rectal tissue of a hippopotamus. So, what's it like to be that leech? It's a very specific <laughs> lifestyle. I mean, there's so many different types of leech, leeches out there. Yeah, uh, with very specific hosts in some cases, uh, and some actually eat worms as opposed to you know, living on blood. Mm-hmm. But this, this leech knows what it wants. It knows hippo what it wants, rectum. and it's hippo rectum. So it's possible that the hippo tail is as much about just flinging uh, those away from its body as possible. And certainly in other large uh, herbivores, we see the use of the tail as a, a means of keeping flies away from the rectum as well, and ultimately about you know keeping parasites away from that uh, delicate area of the anatomy that is otherwise uh, difficult to reach. 
Now, I want to get back to uh, monkeys for a second, because w- when I talked about monkeys and their prehensile tails, obviously not all monkeys have prehensile tails, but the uh, the New World monkeys that have them, I talked about them using them in climbing, and there are multiple ways, actually, that a tail could come into climbing behaviors. It wouldn't necessarily just have to be for gripping branches or for bracing against uh trunks and limbs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be used as a, as a, as a balance, as a counterweight. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Yeah, and um, and certainly you can imagine this by, just imagine yourself balancing on a beam mm-hmm. and the various things you use your arm for, you know, spreading your arms out and all that. If you had a tail, that would just be another part of your body that you could utilize in, in such a fashion. Even something like your modern house cat will utilize its, its tail uh, for balance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, another animal that uses it not only uses its tail for balance, but also for propulsion, and uses it for pul- pr- propulsion on land, is of course the kangaroo. Mm. You know they have that large tail uh, sticking out behind them, huge muscular tail. And according to a 2014 study published in the journal Biology Letters, the kangaroo utilizes its tail as a, a true fifth leg. The researchers found that the tail of a walking kangaroo works as hard as the leg of a uh, comparably sized human uh, moving at the same speed. Wait, so the tail makes contact with the ground? Yes, it does. And I'll get to to, uh, to that part in a second. For the most part, though, as it hops, the, the tail lashes up and down, helping the creature stabilize while also serving as a motor to lift and help accelerate the kangaroo's body. So it's almost... It's almost like a, a, a fish's tail, except it's uh, it, it's just, it's moving in the air, and it's mm. about uh, you know thrusting the body as opposed to actually making contact with anything. Wow. However, uh, however, to your point though, the that that fifth uh, leg, that giant tail, uh, can support the kangaroo's full body, and you'll uh, you'll often see this occur when uh, when male kangaroos are kicking at each other. They'll kick up, you know, they will do that kangaroo kick, mm-hmm. and uh, and in doing so. So they actually come up on the tail. Now, of course, a lot of the, the rest of the time, the, the creatures are not doing high-speed hops, and they're not kicking each other. They're just, you know, gently browsing uh, for stuff to eat. And in those those situations, the tail just kind of, uh, uh, you know, fades into the background for a little bit. Uh, but it's a re- really remarkable tail when you when you look at uh, at uh, at its uh, high-speed hopping behavior uh, and uh, its ability to just rear up on that tail and kick with its feet. When I was a kid, I remember I thought kangaroos were one of the coolest animals, and I think that simply had to do with the obvious athleticism you see in in a kangaroo bounding. Yeah, and I never really thought about the role its tail played. Yeah, it's easy because they have you know pretty remarkable physiologies. Otherwise, like nothing really looks like a kangaroo. Um, but yeah, when they're I, I challenge anyone to next time you're watching a kangaroo run, either at, at a zoo or or just looking up, uh, you know, videos on YouTube, uh, observe the tail. I mean, it, what the, the kangaroo is doing, it's a full-body movement, obviously, and the, the tail plays an enormous role in that movement, even if it's not making contact with the ground. Um, I have to admit, the, the kangaroo is a, a creature I kind of took for granted because you would see <laughs> cartoons where they get in boxing matches. You'd see footage of them running. But then you go to the zoo uh, and you see uh, captive kangaroos, and they're just all... You know, lying on the ground and kind of splayed, and they kind of look like old men, like naked, furry old men laying around. I can think of it as um, <laughs> kanger danger. You know, uh, you just want to look around, look away, and 
tell the children not to make eye contact with the creepy kangaroo. Yeah, there is something kind of sad about seeing bounding animals in captivity. Yeah. It's it's almost a, the equivalent, though not quite the same, of, of hunting animals in captivity. I'm sure you've seen uh, those YouTube videos where a tiger will see a child at the zoo and come up and through the glass and try to eat the baby. Yeah, yeah, it's far more far more depressing with the um, with the large carnivores for sure, and and certainly any animal that that uh, depends on on you know a large uh, territory in which to range about. Now I'm going to also go ahead and throw uh, the fox in here. There's not a lot to this one, but uh, with the fox, you do see them using their big bushy tails as a warming wrap. Uh, so there's another use. Yeah, right there. Uh, of course, the tail can play a role in some kind of energy conservation. Another way it could play a role in energy conservation is storage of fat. Mm. Uh, like you might see this in an alligator that stores fat at the base of its tail. I was trying to find information about this, and when I Googled alligator tail, almost all of the results were about meat. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. For example, a grocery item on Amazon called alligator tail meat, five pounds. <laughs> it had very good reviews. Uh, but uh, apparently uh, alligators aren't the only ones who will put some fat in their tail, store it for later. Yeah, um, for instance, sheep also keep a fat reserve in their tail. And really, if there's if there's room for fat in an animal's tail, it's essentially serving that purpose. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things, when you start looking at tails um, uh, with various creatures, there's often like a very predominant talking point uh, purpose for the tail, but then there are various other uh, uses as well. Like it could be a prehensile tail, but if there is uh, you know, room for any fat storage in there, well, then it's, it's also achieving that uh, goal as well. Another way that a tail can be fat without necessarily being fatty or having fat cells in it is tail volume. Oh, yeah. I, I was interested in the question of what creature in the world has the biggest tail, but then I realized that's actually not very interesting because, and I can't find any documentation to confirm this, I have to assume that it's probably just the blue whale, since the blue whale has the biggest of everything yes. it has. That would, I think that would be a very safe bet. Uh, but if you know otherwise, please email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com and let us know. But I, I did think of the question of what land mammal has the largest tail in relation to its body. So the largest tail to body ratio. Mm-hmm. And if you count the volume of fluff rather mm-hmm. than mass, the trophy seems to go to the tufted ground squirrel of Borneo or uh, Rathroscurus macrotus. I found a great feature in science from June 2014 about this bizarre animal. And what they said is that it, first of all, it's about twice the size of most tree squirrels, and they say it reputedly has a taste for blood. What? For, like for real or just in like folklore? Uh, I think it's folklore, oh, okay. but we'll get to that in a second. So the size of it, it's about like 35 centimeters long. It has the bushiest tail to body size ratio of any mammal, with the tail being 30% greater by volume than the rest of the squirrel's body. Wow. That's a big tail. That is a big tail. So why is the tail so bushy? Uh, one of the scientists referenced in that, in that science article hypothesized that this giant puffball of a tail could confuse or distract predators like leopards, or it could simply prevent the predator from getting a good grip on the squirrel if mm-hmm. it was trying to catch it. Uh, also, apparently, like I said, the squirrel has this messed up reputation in local legend. Hunters claim that it attacks much larger animal like deer. It slashes them to death and then tears their guts out. 
Whoa. I certainly want to believe that story, like the blood-crazed killer squirrel. He reminds me of a certain rabbit from uh, Monty Python. (laughs) Right, yeah. It's the only squirrel you know of that might harvest your organs, but it looks like the scientists are skeptical that this is true. All right. We're going to go ahead and cut the tail off here. Okay. But next time, in in part two of our uh, two-parter about tails, we're going to talk about using tails in communication. Uh, we're going to talk about the strange world of autotomy. Mm-hmm. Am I this pronouncing that right? Autotomy is uh, autotomy. how i pronouncing it. But, um, yeah, and the scorpion will come back up again, as yeah. promised. Um, and then, of course, humans. Humans. Why yes. don't we have tails? Where's our tail? We will discuss. In the meantime, if you want to check out more content uh, from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, all the blog posts, uh, various videos, as well as links out to our social media accounts that we uh, we keep all our eyes on. And if you want to follow up on any of the rabbit trails we went down about tales today, or if you just have an interesting tale fact you'd like to share with us, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.